Now, interpreting according to the analogy of Scripture, as long as it's on outside, means that we have to interpret according to the purpose of Scripture. And that's right, Scripture does have a purpose. And we should always, in a sense, be interpreting from the centre, the purpose, outwards. And Scripture's purpose is realised in Jesus and through faith in Jesus. Whether that's of an individual book, like John says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. So you ask, what's the purpose of John? It's actually that you believe in Jesus. But actually, Jesus thinks the purpose of all of Scripture is actually to speak about him and to direct people to him. So Luke 24, or John, uh, again, uh, Philip saying, we found the one of whom Moses in the Law and the Prophets wrote. And that's what Jesus says. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. The purpose of scripture is to witness to Jesus and all the promises of God find their yes in him. So we should always be interpreting scripture in the light of its determination to tell us about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, the meaning of what he's done, what it is to trust him. And we should recognise that purpose. So as I think Packer said, if you want to learn astronomy, or for that matter brain surgery, go elsewhere. That's not the reason scripture's been given. You ought to always be reading all of scripture, and, and that includes Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, as Christocentric, centred on Christ and covenantal, that is, designed to bring you, given to you, to bring you and keep you in covenant relationship with the living God. That's actually its purpose. It's not given, say, to teach you science. So you interpret from the centre outwards, you interpret the obscure in the light of the clear and the peripheral uh, by the central and uh, risk of, you know, I think, you know, the millennium's moderately peripheral. So you wouldn't want to make it the centre of uh, the way you understand the whole Bible. So, uh, secondly, the analogy of Scripture means you interpret uh, a passage in the light of other passages on the same theme. And that's pretty important. So you're reading through the Gospels and you're reading Mark 10 about divorce and there's not that acceptive clause. Or well, Luke 16, 16, there's not that acceptive clause. Now, by the acceptive clause, I mean what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 9, where he says, I say to you, and he says this in Matthew 5, 2, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So it's quite clear here that Jesus says that there are some marriages following divorce, which are not adulterous, uh, where you divorce your wife for sexual immorality, in this case a wife, and, and you remarry, that subsequent remarriage is not adulterous. Now some people want to read uh, the scripture as if there's just Mark's, Mark 10, and so there's no divorce, no remarriage. But actually it's probably the other way around. Mark 10 just takes what Jesus says in Matthew 19 uh, for granted. 
and not just because adultery in the Jewish system, at least in the law, was always understood as ending divorce because in the law it actually ended your life if you were found out. Not that they still did that at that time, but that. But in Rome, and people think that Mark was written in Rome, uh, divorce for sexual immorality was taken for granted because the Emperor Augustus had created the crime of pandering, which was a capital offence. And pandering is putting your wife out to prostitution. And so if you had a wife who was committing adultery, this is one of the reasons he put it in, that was pandering. And if you didn't act, you died. So they probably just took it for granted in, uh, in Rome that adultery ended the marriage. So, so anyhow, you've got to interpret. You, it's wrong to interpret Mark 10 without reference to Matthew 9, 19. Or uh, it would be wrong to interpret 1 Corinthians 14. So there you go. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, he says to the Corinthians in the context of their pretty chaotic gathering, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak. They should be in submission, as the law also says. Now, some people understand that. They look at that and say, oh, you can't have a woman saying a word in church. But that's kind of parachuting into 1 Corinthians 14 without having passed through 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. Actually, this is in the gathering. Uh, that's why a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Right? It's plain that women are actually doing verbal activities in church, praying and prophesying. So you can't take 1 Corinthians 14 as a complete prohibition on all verbal activity by women in a congregation. In fact, it's given in the context of assessing prophecy. So you just got to, they're just illustrations of what hopefully is obvious. You interpret one passage in the light of other passages on the same theme. And the analogy of scripture also means that you always interpret the earlier in the light of the later and the fuller. And so the, the little uh, line is, you know, the old is in the new revealed, the new is in the old concealed. So when you're reading your Bible and you come to the food laws of Leviticus, you don't go away and sign up for sanatorium, right? Uh, you, you actually read Mark 7, where Jesus says it's the things that come, speaking about food laws, that come from the heart that make somebody unclean. And a rigid legalism that speaks to food laws actually denies the teaching of Jesus. That can just inflate your pride. The, uh, what you've got to flee from is the uncleanness of anger and sexual immorality and oh pride, those those things. So you interpret the food laws in the light of what comes after Mark seven and Galatians and Colossians, or the sacrifice of Leviticus in the light of Hebrews, uh, the types in the light of what they call the antitype. So you you interpret Samson. Uh, you don't read Samson and think. Okay, Samson is plainly a model of behaviour. I need to kill people with a jawbone and get myself an unreliable mistress. That's probably not the not the point, right? But you can teach him teach him and think in the light of Jesus, who comes as judge and saviour, and actually look at Samson, he points to Jesus, he saves his people by his death. 
right, when he pulls down the temple on top of himself. Uh, same with David. You understand him in the light of the fulfilment of the idea of the Messiah in Christ. Uh, you don't take Jacob's polygamy as a model. Let me say, if you really read the text, you'd flee from polygamy. you think that man must have... Well, he had a good reason to spend a lot of time out with the flocks, right? Uh, right? But, 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 but you, you, don't, you don't think you'd endorse right, uh, polygamy through... Because, oh, look, they do it in the Old Testament. But actually, the New Testament, Matthew 19, and then reflected in the instruction about elders, is a model of monogamous marriage and lifelong faithfulness. And that's actually suggested to model Christ and the church. So uh, the, the, the later develops, it doesn't deny what came before. So say, for example, Jesus fulfills the law. But you always have to interpret the earlier in the light of the later and fuller. So the prophecies of the temple in Ezekiel you wouldn't think it's going to be fulfilled by rebuilding a temple on the Temple Mount and reinstituting sacrifice. At least you wouldn't think that if you'd read John 2. Uh, Ephesians uh, 2 about being built into a temple uh, and Revelation. Uh, and you can always ask uh, questions, but this assumes a biblical theology, a way of tying the Bible story together. And of course the focus of that tying together is Jesus and his gift of the spirit and creation in the church. A covenant theology is actually a way of interpreting the Bible, a hermeneutic, which helps relate the New Testament to the Old Testament and allows us to see why the New Testament treats some parts of the Old Testament as it does. So, so anyhow, you always read the earlier. If you To understand what God is saying to you in that passage, you read the earlier in the light of the later and the, fulfill, the later and its fulfilment, and you never set scripture against scripture. As the Anglican article uh, 20 says, it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that's contrary to God's word written, neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. Because to insert, set scripture against scripture is to deny the authorship of scripture by God or is to say that God has confused or he's changed his mind about saying, but he actually, he never confused and he's always true and sure and right. And yet that is actually what we see happening. You know, some people will say, I want to set Galatians 3.28 and Christ no male or female against 1 Timothy 2. I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over the church. Now, you know, they want to say this is the true word of God and this is just a, a cultural word. And again, what they've done is deny the authorship of some parts of scripture and privilege others. Other people want to set, you, you know, the Old Testament God of justice against the New Testament God of love and acceptance. But again, uh, that's really to say that there are two different gods. It's not the one God who's given us all scripture and working towards the fulfilment in the whole. So again, if, if you're reading something, and uh, you know, you get to James 2 and says, you see, uh, justified not by works alone, not by faith alone, but by what he's done, and then you read Romans 3, what you then have to do is actually think very hard. So one God who gave both, 
what's actually saying. And in this case, for example, they use faith differently, they use righteousness differently, and they have a different understanding of works, actually. The three, so they're not actually speaking against each other, they are speaking with different senses of terminology to different circumstances, to different sins, actually. But you actually have to think, but you won't think if you become lazy and say, oh, James just got it wrong. <laughs> Bang! Out the door. You won't be challenged in your understanding of, say, justification, and you won't be challenged to see how certainly Paul ties a changed life to being justified by faith alone. You won't see the beauty of union with Christ. Okay, so that's the analogy of Scripture. Third principle uh, is what I think I should probably rephrase, universality in meaning. Uh, I've called it universality in applications to say that the results of grammatico-historical exegesis in the light of the unity of Scripture are actually normative for everyone, every believer of every age and uh, place. Now, uh, the, the basis of this is that God doesn't change. He has the same attitude to things across the ages. You know, sin is always going to be sin and he always is going to oppose sin, right? He, he doesn't change what he thinks is right or wrong. And so this is, in a sense, uh, uh, and, and God is the God of all, right? So, so it's, he's not a different God for people in a different culture. So God doesn't change. Uh, secondly, the human plight doesn't change. Our problem is not really ignorance, but creaturely rebellion and God's response to it. That is, he judges justly. And of course, thirdly, uh, the sun doesn't change. He's still the only way to life and all are still called to faith and repentance. So what God says, he says to all. And this insistence on the universality of application of the conclusions of true exegesis is actually saying that scripture has to critique our own presuppositions, our traditions and our culture. You know, uh, we can't elevate any age or culture as the one against which the Bible must measure up and uh, the one which allows us, us to pick and choose what we'll hear from the Bible. Because God doesn't change, sin doesn't change, and his way of salvation uh, doesn't change. So there must be a committedness to what God says in our reading. And this is quite different from the spirit of our age. So Rosemary Radford Ruther said, the church revises what it remembers, which is kind of very convenient. Now, uh, the notion of universality, in a sense, of the conclusions of exegesis is rejected by what people call a, a new hermeneutic or, if you want to phrase again, a postmodern relativism. Now, uh, we're going to think some more uh, about this, and this, again, uh, has to do with the focus on the reader and a, a kind of a half insight. So they start saying that none of us can step outside our presuppositions, our pre-understanding of the world. 
Uh, we all have those presuppositions, what we just take for granted about the world, about reality, and that determines the questions we ask, and because we take them for granted, it's very hard for us to see them. Nobody sees their blind spots. Now, at one level, that's kind of true, and those pre-understandings can uh, affect uh, the way we read the text and, in a sense, the meaning we recover from it. And, this, and Christians can particularly have pre-understandings. So if you're a particularly doctrinally systematised Christian, you can come to the text thinking it just has to fit your system because you've got it all together. And uh, so you really labour over Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 if you come from our kind of worldview, as opposed to just hearing it, which is saying, get on and trust Jesus. But anyhow, uh, or, or you can come familiar with the text and, and you think, I just know this, and you never hear anything new from it. But most importantly, we, we take our cultural baggage with us. You know, and a lot of that's shaped by our family and our surrounding culture, as an example. Uh, many of us will have had good families, good fathers. We don't find it hard to think of God as father, but some people may have had abusive fathers. And so they find it very hard to, in a sense, get the emotional impact of calling God father, uh, which is actually part of the sense, the meaning of scripture. Uh, there are things that we just assume uh, about the world, and our worldview gives us limiting boundaries. Now, um, uh, these blokes, Duval and Hayes, have a very good uh, illustration of this uh, for um, Americans. They actually challenge Americans to think about the revolution in the light of Romans 13. And they ask them to think, can they think it was wrong? Because Romans 13 says we should submit to government. That's a really challenging. I was thinking about us. You know, on one hand, I think we have limiting boundaries. I was talking to Kerry. I think uh, before 1 Corinthians 11, I think almost a reflex. When we come to 1 Corinthians 11, we start by thinking it could not be talking about wearing real veils. <laughs> and, and most of our exegesis is designed to demonstrate that. But even more telling, I think, is actually Luke 6. Listen to this. This is why we probably prefer Matthew. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And I think we're thinking that must mean something other than what it says. As soon as we hear it. Because our culture despises poverty, hunger and mourning. Even worse, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. What, what's that second ABC channel called? The Comedy Channel. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to all you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But actually, that's what our society admires. The rich, the satisfied, 
the unbearably cheerful and superficially happy, right? And uh, and people who are well thought of. Oh, it's a it's a real challenge to engage with that. Does Jesus really mean what he says? And if he means what he says, what does that mean about the things that my culture tells me I should pursue? Pre-understandings, we all have them and they can limit our interpretation. It's a true insight, isn't it, that there are pre-understandings and the text, simple illustrations for the way uh, those pre-understandings can affect uh, or presuppositions affect the way we read the text. Uh, there's a translator who was talking to a group of uh, Papua New Guinea uh, Highlanders and he got to the bit where he's talking about John the Baptist's head being brought to Salome and her mother on a platter. And that group of ex-cannibals said, of course, the woman always gets the head. Just natural. What, what else would you do with it? Or, uh, I grew up uh, with, um, uh, with temperance people. The labour expended to show that Jesus did not turn water into wine. It's phenomenal. Right? Uh, uh, but, uh, or increasingly, people who just can't hear that Jesus made a whip to drive the Cadillac because violence. Oh, he couldn't be violent. They're just our pre-understandings are first. So this is a half truth, isn't it? There's a truth in this that that uh, what we believe about the world, what the worldview we have, in a sense, shapes our understanding of Scripture. Uh, I'm going to return to this uh, when we think about the reader of Scripture. But some people say those pre-understandings mean, in a sense, we can only get answers for ourselves. They talk about what they call a hermeneutical circle. We ask our questions, we get our answers. We ask our questions, we get it. But, but it's all just in relation to self. Other people acknowledge this truth, and if I'd had time I would have found a slide somewhere on the internet, but they talk about a hermeneutical spiral. That is, as you ask questions, you get answers, and they bring you closer and closer to the true meaning of the text as they correct you and your questions. And we'll come back to why that, that is actually the case uh, in the world. But, but, but there's another way of responding to this truth, and that is acknowledge it and embrace it. Yes, we have presuppositions that we bring to the text. Uh, the important thing is to have the right ones. There is no false ideal of objectivity in reading scripture. We actually need commitment to read it rightly. We can't, as Christians, come to scripture and read it just like any other book, which is the higher critical ideal. We should reject that wholeheartedly. If you ever can find it, I don't think I put it on the uh, bibliography, there's a book by Eta Linneman. Uh, she was a, a, a woman who did her doctoral studies under Bultmann and then went, didn't believe, uh, then went as a missionary to Indonesia to teach in their seminaries. And she got converted, which is just wonderful, right? Uh, but she said, uh, you can read her home journey, to read the Bible uh, as if there were no God, which is the high critical ideal. You just read it as just a human book. 
is to already have elevated critical reason over scripture and that reason then becomes the arbiter. Uh, and it's, of course it's, it's not to read it on its own terms which, as she says, is already an act of willful superiority. You've already assumed that you and your culture are superior uh, to, 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 to the text. So to be a Christian is to come knowing that this is the word of God by which God has called you to himself, instructs and guides you. It's to read it with that committedness that Packer states, speaks of. It's high time that awareness of the text as God here and now addressing us is latter-day readers and teaching us from a challenging us by law and gospel, promise and command, gift and claim should once more come to inform professional biblical studies in the church. And it should inform your reading. You, your presupposition, your fundamental one, should be to come to scripture expectantly, that this is God speaking to you his child in his word. And you come with that pre-commitment that this is the word of God. And, uh, and that because of that, it is, must confront and discipline all cultures, all our pre-understandings must be subject to it. Now, the notion that there is kind of universality in meaning is uh, controversial because it says that there is no ultimate pluralism in the meaning of the biblical text and that means uh, that there's no pluralistic theologies. It means there is an orthodoxy to which we should expect all believers to conform. And it says that scripture given will confront all cultures and all classes and all behaviours. Now that is not something new. Okay, uh, the scripture has been confronting cultures and behaviours from the beginning. So take for example 1 Corinthians, scriptural teaching on sexual morality. Uh, in Greek culture for men there was an acceptability of concubines, an acceptability of courtesans, acceptability of going to prostitutes. They were culturally acceptable. But scripture confronted them. In fact, forbade consorting with prostitutes, said that the elder should be the husband of one wife. They made no cultural concession to that practice. Scripture's always been uh, confronting culture. And in fact, if you read Revelation 2 and 3, uh, the teaching of uh, that Jezebel or of Balaam is exactly the opposite. Uh, they're the people who teach you to accommodate, in this case, to the sexual mores of the surrounding cultures and they are denounced. So, uh, so, so there is this universality in me that when you understand what scripture says, you have to believe and do it no matter what culture you're in. Now that universality of meaning needs to be distinguished from particularity of application. Uh, and, and application in your own life will always be uh, particular. Take the easiest example, love of neighbour. Right? In a sense, we, we get that what means, but in one context, love of neighbour might be pushing his or her car into the river. 
because it's on fire and about to explode and you really want to get it out of the garage and cross the street and into the river if you're happy enough to live at Port Macquarie or somewhere like that. Whereas in another context, pushing your neighbour's car into the river might be seen as hatred, right? Especially if he or she is in it at the time, right? Uh, and, and you need to remember that cross-culturally too. I had a friend uh, who was visiting Nepal as part of his medical elective and he and uh, he came to the Sherpa district and the Sherpas eat lots of potatoes and they keep a potato winter store, right? And... Uh, uh, in that culture, initially he thought I could stop and, and leave some on the plate and they'd accept that. But actually, no, in that culture, well, no, well, he didn't think that initially. He'd been brought up to think, you appreciate something, you clean the plate. Isn't that what you do? You don't leave anything on the plate. His consternation, so he's trying to love them. Imagine his consternation when they then refilled it. And he didn't want to disappoint them. But what he actually was doing was eating down their winter potato store while becoming more and more uncomfortable. Uh, what it meant to love them was actually to stop with some stuff on the plate. And then they think he's full. He's had enough. So there is what it means and there's particularity of application. But there's actually no ultimate pluralism in meaning, isn't it? That command, love your neighbour as yourself, means you should promote the other's best interests as those interests are actually revealed by scripture. And no culture is free from the expectation that every believer should love their neighbour as themselves, even if application, how that gets expressed, is different. Now that's true of all of God's commands. So uh, universality in application, that brings us to our uh, fourth point, uh, it's not the least, in fact, it's probably the most important. It's the one that, in a sense, forms the foundation of all the others, and that is Scripture can only be interpreted uh, by the Holy Spirit. Right? Uh, and we know that. It's only God who can open our eyes to see the truth of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children. Or well, blessed are you, Simon Barjana, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Right? Paul's very clear. Uh, the truth about Jesus is spiritually uh, discerned. Uh, by ourselves, we are blind and ignorant and in darkness, and it's only as God shines the light of the gospel in our hearts that we can understand we have to have the Spirit if we're actually going to fully understand what God is saying to us in his word. Now, I say it's undergirding because the Spirit uses means to bring us to understand the word. And we've been talking about those means. You know, original languages, good translation, history, culture, the analogy of scripture, knowing all the scripture, right? Now, that should not surprise us. The Spirit uses means to bring us to himself. No, the preaching of the gospel, the friend who explained two ways to live. So the Spirit uses means to teach us about God, to teach us about the Lord Jesus through his words. Now, the means God has given us is patient, disciplined study of God's revelation of himself 
in Scripture. Lots of people want to kind of sidetrack that, you know, bypass it and think, I've got the Spirit, therefore, you know, I can understand anything and that's all I need to do. And most of the time, you know, the big things they'll get right and most of the rest they'll get wrong. And sometimes dangerously so. Uh, it's part of our growing as people in faith and the it's the obedience of faith that brings us to Scripture because we think God has spoken here, he's given us all these words, we actually should understand them all and, and what they mean. Now the Spirit, part of the means that the Spirit gives us is each other. The Spirit's given to all God's people. And the work of the Spirit undergirds not just individual understanding, but, but also the role of our fellowship and teachers in our growing knowledge of God. And God's people collectively do have a role in helping us discern truth. 1 Corinthians 14, uh, if a, somebody is giving a prophecy, it says the others should discern, should test to see if this is a true revelation to see what it means. Uh, 1 Thessalonians tells us we ought to test all things because God gives his spirit to all his people. And the spirit does give us teachers. They read from the book, uh, from the law of God clearly. So this is the priests, the Levites, and they gave the sense so the people understood. And the ascended Lord Jesus gives to his people apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. And notice that they're all people who use words you know, to prepare God's people for works of service so that they can grow up to maturity. In fact, the key part of the ministry that the Apostle Paul provides for as he anticipates his own departures is actually that ministry of teaching. The first is his instruction to Timothy in Ephesus devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And the second is to Timothy as he anticipates his own death. What you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust of faithful men who are able to teach others also. Now, which means that we don't do our interpretation of scripture alone or in isolation. We do it in a community of God's people, a community of God's people in whom over the ages, to whom over the ages God has given teachers. And this also shows the place of tradition. The Spirit is given to all God's people, all cultures, all ages, and so we ought to learn from what he has taught our brothers and sisters in the past in their differing contexts. And that is one way of being set free from our own cultural blinkers. It's one way of actually starting to see your blind spots when you see what Christians in the past have understood uh, this text to mean. And there's this nice quote from J.I. Packer. The only course that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the church will sanction is to approach scripture in the light of historic Christian study of it. Church tradition, in the sense of, he used some Latin, that which is handed on, should be valued as a venture in biblical understanding by those who went before us, whom the Spirit helped as he helps us. Much of today's biblical study and exposition, even though conducted according to the three interpretive principles which he stated, by which is exegesis, synthesis, application, suffers through what C.S. Lewis somewhere called chronological snobbery. 
the supposition that what is most recent will always be wisest and best, and the latest word is nearer to being the last word than any that went before. Those under the influence of this assumption do not seriously consult work done prior to our own time, and that is very much to our loss. You actually need... Uh, you 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 need awareness of what our brothers and sisters in the past thought. Now you don't want to become, you know, a kind of anachronism, you know, somebody who can only quote the Puritans or something like that, as if they were the last word on it, right? But you actually do need to have read what people have thought about it in the past if you're studying it seriously, as well as engaging in the issues of the present and with biblical scholarship in the present. Uh, now, uh, the the uh, the necessity of acknowledging the spirit's work uh, may should actually destroy pride and foster humility in what is for many of us, and this can actually even happen in our Bible studies, is an intellectually competitive environment where, especially evangelicals, we score points by demonstrating how well we understand the text. That's how we impress others. But actually, you really can't understand it without the Spirit. It's God's gift. Uh, it also should give us confidence not to be backward in teaching the Scriptures to all God's people because where the Spirit's at work, you should expect understanding and the application of Scripture to all, no matter what uh, their educational achievement. And, and Helen and I were reminded of this listening to Mes McConnell. He talks about people who never finished school, people who have been abused, people who spent a lot of time in prison, people with huge rates of unemployment. But when they get converted, they meet for Bible study daily and they understand it. Right? We, we mustn't... Uh, think that more intelligent Christians are better Christians or better educated Christians are better Christians. We should have absolute confidence because God's truth is given by the Spirit and understood by the work of the Spirit. It'll be understood by all God's people. And discipling is always teaching God's word, whoever it is. And thirdly, uh, of course, the fact the understanding given by the Spirit should underline for us the link between understanding and obedience. Those who have the Spirit will keep in step with the Spirit. The purpose of God's Word, remember, is to teach, rebuke, correct and train so that we're equipped for every good work. So we're actually equipped for life. The aim of our charge, says St Paul in 1 Timothy 3, is love. It comes from a pure conscience and a sincere faith. Uh, that's where he's correcting false teachers. Now, uh, as, as a plea, uh, I should also say, hopefully, the particularity of Revelation, you know, the fact that you understand its meaning as you understand the meaning intended by the first audience for the or first audience for the original, or uh, the first writers for the original audience, the particularity of Revelation is why you should maintain places where people can learn, where they can learn original languages, where they can learn ancient history, where they can learn church history. And it's why you should support training of people who are gifted to teach God's word, men and women, so these people 
who, who have those gifts actually have time to become familiar with those things and familiar with the whole Bible so that they can actually engage in the original meaning and engage in the analogy of Scripture. And let me say it's why you should, where you have those people and you train them, you should test them in their understanding and skills because part of the Spirit's provision for us in understanding God's Word is teachers. And we want them uh, to be well-trained and orthodox. And, uh, you know, there's a tendency to try and do those things on the cheap or focus on people who have good practical skills. Uh, but uh, you want a teacher, it doesn't matter. God gives lots of different gifts to lots of different people. There'll always be somebody else who can do the admin, somebody else who can do the IT, somebody else who can build the building. We've seen that. What you want from your teachers is people who can teach and who will just keep teaching. And you should train them for that and expect that to happen, men and women. Now, I, this is the... This is the uh, I'm, just as Scripture tells us about itself by revealing Jesus in the attitude description, just as Scripture guides us as to how we should read us the Word of God, so, and this comes back to the focus on the reader, the Scripture also tells us about ourselves, the reader. And this is important to consider uh, both because of the recent focus on the reader as the source of meaning, creating meaning, and also to explain the great hermeneutical mystery. What is the great hermeneutical mystery, I hear you say, summoning up some enthusiasm? Right, well, well, well people, people you know, pose the hermeneutical problem as this great gulf. The great hermeneutical mystery is why so much has been understood so well by so many in so many different times and places. That is the great hermeneutical mystery, right? And uh, scripture gives you an answer to it because it actually gives you the reader. Just as it gives you the text, right? It gives you uh, the reader. Uh, you see, we have to let Scripture teach us about ourselves as we come to the text. And uh, let the Scripture read the reader and so inform our understanding of the reader. And the Scripture reveals ourselves to us and there are actually two primary, well, there are three aspects of that revelation of ourselves that are significant for interpretation. Okay, firstly, it tells us we are creatures in the image of God. That is, we're finite, embedded in time and thus in our particular historical circumstances with a finite capacity to remember and understand. But we're actually in God's image after his likeness and so we are capable of verbal communication and the establishment of relationship with others outside of ourselves by means of words. Because whatever it else it means that to have been made in God's image after his likeness, what have you seen of God in Genesis 1? You really are. Yes, he speaks. Good. Right. So to be made in God's image is to be equipped with words. It's to be equipped, whatever else it is, is to be equipped for communication. This is a God-given faculty and one which universal experience confirms works more or less efficiently to allow ourselves to make ourselves known to ourselves and to know others. And so as such, 
you know, as such creatures, we are multifaceted in our interaction with the rest of reality, and so we can be spoken of as souls with imagination susceptible to poetry and imagery. You know, there are many different forms of verbal communication that can reach us. That's the first thing about the reader. Made in God's image, creation has set up the context and the possibility of revelation because it was always God's intention to bring us into relationship with himself. The second thing uh, scripture teaches about ourselves is we are fallen creatures in the image of God. The Bible's emphasis when it comes to portraying humanity is not on our point in time, whether we're ancient or modern. It relates primarily to us as sinners, rebels who wickedly suppress the truth, whose understanding has thus become darkened and who are thus ignorant of God. It sees our primary problem in understanding God's revelation as not intellectual but moral and spiritual. Because of this, we need always to be submitting our judgments, agendas and questions to God's word. And uh, this focus on the reader is, is seriously deficient because it just is preoccupied with present and, in a sense, top-of-head concerns. And see why that's inadequate. When I go to the doctor, I might be troubled by certain symptoms. Let's say itchy skin and might be very keen to have that alleviated. So I'm coming to the doctor saying, what can you do for my itchy skin, right? It might be my only concern. However, the doctor, if she's good, will be concerned with the underlying cause of my itchiness. And she might see, she might look in my eyes and think, you are a bit yellow. You know, see, it's associated with jaundice and be coming from some problem with my liver and or bile duct, perhaps even a bile duct blocked by a small biliary carcinoma. See, I might have been happy to walk out with a stronger calamine, but if I'm wise, I'll let the doctor who knows set the treatment agenda. I'll actually let the doctor give me the really important question. The question is, what can you do to save my life? Right? My question mightn't be the important or the real <laughs> it's a question, right? It's the same with the scriptures. I might have certain questions, but God, who knows me, has to be allowed to tell me in his word that they are not the important issues. He actually has to control the agenda of my interaction with him in his word. So it tells us we're creatures in God's image. It tells us that we're sinners, and therefore our questions should not and ever be the primary questions. We ought to let scripture give us the questions that matter because God knows us. And the question that matters is, how can I be right with the living God who's judge? And then there's a third thing Scripture tells us about us that explains why the hermeneutical gap, you know, the, or people talk about the two horizons, or this book talks about the river that you've got to cross between, in a sense, uh, their culture and our culture there, right? right? It's, it's actually not so great. You see, any theory of understanding, if adequate, has to explain why so much is understood by so many. And so while it's right to acknowledge the distance between us and the text, um, which, which some people have problems doing, you know, especially people who walk around asking, what would Jesus do? You know, what would Jesus do? There you are at the bus stop wondering, what would Jesus do? 
Well, the first thing you ought to do is turn away from the bus and start walking, of course, because that's exactly what Jesus did. But anyhow, uh, you know, uh, sorry, that was, I, I had to get that one in. <laughs> it is a very bad interpretive question, okay? Uh, right, uh, but anyhow, uh, right, right. While it's right to acknowledge the distance between us and the text, an acknowledgement of the historical, and that acknowledges that, you know, Scripture comes to us certain people, certain times, certain place. We also ought to acknowledge our proximity to the situation of many of the first recipients of the New Testament writings. This proximity is not cultural or historical, but theological, which is the fundamental category. We share with them a common experience of God's grace in salvation through faith in the gospel preached by the apostles. The gospel gives us our essential pre-understandings and in believing the gospel we come to share in a large measure and in all significant features the presuppositions of the apostles and their first hearers. And you, you need to remember that. Believe the gospel, you have in a sense embraced their worldview from the very start. These propositions, presuppositions include, first of all, that Jesus is God's son, the saviour, concerning whom all the scriptures speak, for example, the reality of the gift of the Spirit, that the apostles are divinely appointed messengers, that God has spoken to us in their words and other aspects of Christian truth. You get that the moment you believe the gospel. right? And that brings you into theological proximity with the first hearers. Because let's face it, you're only one generation away from the people who heard Paul preach in Rome. It's true, isn't it? You're just like their children who never heard any apostles and who related to them through the apostolic writings. And you've got their worldview as soon as you believe the gospel. So, uh, the, don't, you can't let the reader be dominant. Just as uh, God tells you in his word that the word is his word, and just as it tells you how to read it, it tells you about you, the reader, and what are the most central concerns. And as you keep reading as a faithful reader, you will, your understanding, as your culture and your presupposition you're confronted, will grow closer and closer and closer to actually fully understanding the text, fully understanding what God is saying to you in your context and guiding you in its application. So... Anyhow, uh, the point of all this, of course, if, is, uh, and this is where we'll end, is that you actually read the Bible. Uh, you read the Bible constantly. Uh, you read it dependent on God. You read it diligently because you know this is the word of the living God to you. That's, uh, you know, Scripture tells us that this is the one God looks to. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The book of Revelation says to the churches, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, and that's present, let him keep on hearing what the Spirit says to the churches. God's people are those who keep on listening to the Lord Jesus, listening to do what he says 
trembling at his word, receiving it as true, the word by which we'll be judged at the last day, John 12, the word which is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, the word upon which we can build securely for eternity. So if you've been listening, the outcome should be to be a diligent reader, to read it with understanding, read it expectantly that God will speak to you, to devote yourself to it. Oh yeah, and to sustain Bible teaching in our congregation, in our youth group, in our growth groups, in our Sunday school, and support the training of those gifted by God to teach. You actually should be looking for them and you should be encouraging them and you should be supporting them because they are God's gift to his people. Now I haven't uh, spoken about how to read so I thought to, to finish off with, I'd read John Chapman. This is a, a book he wrote towards the end of his life, Making the Most of the Bible. It's a great little book. If you've got a friend, especially an older friend, because it's large print, uh, who's, who's struggling with the Bible and its role, this is the book to give him. And this is how he read the Bible. I'll just read it for you. It, it, he said, um, you know, it goes without saying that when we come, we should come with a humbled heart, which is longing to know what God says with a view to being obedient. The proud heart is disqualified from knowing the mind of God. Such people cannot fathom God's word. It remains foreign to them. And this is how he does it. This is what I normally do when I read the Bible. The first thing I do is pray that God will help me understand the passage I'm reading with a view to obeying it. Sometimes when the Bible has corrected me, I'm not always sure that I want to be obedient, so I pray that I will be obedient. Next, I read the passage and try to think about what it means. I ask several questions. What does this passage tell me about God and the Lord Jesus? So starting at the centre. Oh, how should I respond to what I've read? Is there a promise in this passage? Is there a warning? Thirdly, I pray that God will help me put into practice in my life what I have just read. Because of the sort of person I am, I keep a book where I write answers to these questions. You may not be like me, but I find this helps me to keep focus. I try and read the Bible each day at a time and a place where I'm not disturbed. For many people, this is really hard, but it is well worth the effort. It's simple, isn't it, though, isn't it? He opens his Bible, he prays, he reads it, he asks some questions, writes some notes, prays again at the end. If I were just starting to read the Bible, I would begin by reading a gospel. This helps me to realise that the Bible's about Jesus and the gospels tell us about him as clearly as any part of the Bible. I then read the Acts of the Apostles, followed by Genesis. I used to use Bible reading notes which aimed to tell me what the passage means. I often didn't find these notes particularly helpful because I'd read the passage then read the notes but I didn't think very much for myself about the text of the Bible. I thought the passage always meant what the notes said. I know this hasn't been the case for everyone and many find notes to be a great help. Thank God we aren't all the same. Find a way that is right for you. Whatever you do, think about the Bible as you read it. So there's, that's us. So if you've got a friend, a friend who's studying or struggling with it, this will tell. He, he works through Jesus' view of the Old Testament and faith. Good little book. But if if you you know if you haven't yet uh, got a method of reading the Bible and you want a bit of help, again I commend to you these uh, these um, 
by, by our daily bread, they kind of give you both. So they give you the passage, they give you a little bit of commentary, this case by David Cook, and he's generally reliable. Uh, but actually, look at this. It actually can get you into this habit of writing down and reflecting as you go. And it comes in English and Chinese. They're not in the one book, but... Right? Uh, so, so it's just a tool. So we've looked at the Bible. Jesus says it's the word of the living God. If you say Jesus is Lord, that's what you say. Right? You have what the apostles wrote. That, that's, and your English translations will tell you that. And the Bible tells you how to read it. And you can read it. Just need to be diligent and disciplined. And come expecting the living God to speak to you. And through speaking to you, to make you more his child and sustain you in the uh, walk of faith to the very end, to bring you. It's one of the means he gives you to bring you to his goal for you to live in his presence forever. So uh, uh, there you go. Oh, yeah, and read it with others because it, actually if it does you good, it will do them good too and it might get them started reading for themselves. But make sure you read it for yourself. You know, it, it's nice, isn't it, doing things with your wife and others. Yeah, that's, that's good, it's enriching. But if that was all you did, never had any time with your wife on your own, you think, bad relationship. Same with God. Okay, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for this time uh, to be encouraged in our conviction uh, that the scripture is your word to us, the word of the living God. Uh, we thank you that you're a real God making yourself known to real people. And so the scripture does come to us in human words from a particular time and place. But we thank you that these words are words for us and that through your spirit and through using the means you give us, careful reading, diligent study, the fellowship of God's people, the work of those whom you've equipped to teach your word, we thank you that these words are words for us and we can understand them. We really can be followers of Jesus who can do all that he has taught us. We can know him know his will for us, know his commitment and love for us through your word. We pray in your mercy that we would be people who tremble at your word, receive it as the word of the living God, and are open to its work, to be taught, to be corrected, to be rebuked, to be trained, and in all things to be encouraged to keep on trusting our Lord Jesus for life. And we pray this so that we would do that good work that you will for us, the work that will bring honour to you and cause other people to thank and praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.